We're uh, going to be considering the Ephesians passage, which has been read already. Uh, and I'm just going to use the prayer, part of the prayer that Paul prayed earlier on in Ephesians for us today, that we might have a revelation of the Lord Jesus. Dear Father, we pray, Father of glory, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Come and do this, we would pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Dear friends, it's a, it's a joy to be at Christ the King Toronto. Uh, I love everything about this church. I love the setting. I love the story of how God led you here. I love the people and the two services that you have. I love your emphasis on the preaching of the word. And so for my wife and I, uh, if we can sneak out on a Sunday and pop into Toronto, uh, it's our joy to sit at the feet of whoever is opening the word. Uh, and it's also a joy to have the privilege of opening the Word today, which is what I want to do. Um, I want to say also that I love this season of Epiphany. Uh, I, uh, I think it's a, it's a great uh, thing. You know, the word Epiphany itself, um, I don't know if this is true, but I have a personal view, which is up until maybe 20 or 30 years ago, the word Epiphany was almost entirely tied to to church things. People didn't use the word epiphany in a regular basis, but I find people are having epiphanies all the time. And what we're talking about here is something which is real and there, but hidden, and suddenly thinking of the sun on a cloudy day. You know what's up there probably, but when the clouds part, then there you are seeing the, sh the radiance of the sunshine beaming down on you. There's an epiphany of what was hidden is now made evident to you. You have an epiphany. And the thing about epiphany, thinking about the star, as uh, often we think of the star leading the three magi to Jesus, uh, there it is, a revelation of the fact that the king of the Jews has been born, which led them to action, which led them actually ultimately to the to the feet of this baby and they're offering these three great gifts which they did. Uh, and so there is this sense in Epiphany not only of a revelation which comes directly from God of, of Jesus, but it's also about the global aspect that those who receive are called to be the vehicle through which the gospel is on display and proclaimed to a needy and dark world otherwise. So I'm really glad to be here and to be preaching on uh, Epiphany Sunday and, uh, and to be preaching on this great passage, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. If you'd like to find it, I'm sorry I don't know the page numbers, uh, but uh, maybe you can help one another and find it. Uh, there, I, I think there are a, a couple of versions that are around and maybe you have your own as well. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13, uh, and the... Uh, particular section which I'm choosing as what I'm calling my text is verses 8 to 10 where Paul says to me though I am the very least of all the saints 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now this is interesting. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is in a letter, this is part of a letter which Paul from prison, maybe 62 AD, in a prison in Rome, uh, thinking about a, a church which he knows well. He had spent uh, three years, he, he says in Acts 20, when he's speaking to the leaders, uh, so, uh, which was a very long time in the scheme of things in terms of, for instance, the, with the Thessalonian group, it could be as little as four weeks that Paul had with them, and yet he knew them well. So three years was a long time. And there's, it was a region where uh, we know about it that, in fact, um, Paul started, as he always did, targeting the Jews, though he knew his call was uniquely to the Gentiles. It says in Acts 19, and he entered the synagogue, this is in Ephesus, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them, about the kingdom of God, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued apparently for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's an interesting thing of how strategically this daily teaching of, of Paul opening the word, pointing to Jesus, could have such an impact on, on a whole region. And it could be described as if all of Asia, and obviously it's talking about that part of Asia, uh, heard, and it was both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. So I just want to say a little bit about the letter to the Ephesians, which gets us to chapter 3. Uh, it's a, it starts with an exalted, what I think is a doxology, blessed verse. If you want to walk with me, if you've got, go back left a bit to verse 3 of, of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on, and, and in this uh, prayer of praise, he's also teaching about what later we're going to be calling the manifold riches of Christ. It, clearly, he has an eternal perspective that he sees a God who before the foundations of the world was already at work, already choosing, already electing and working. So it says, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved, in Him we have redemption through His blood. And on He goes. He talks about lavishing. And so this is the, the foundation, the beginning of this great letter. And in fact, it takes Him, so it's and interestingly, uh, the 3 to 14 is one uh, elegant uh, sentence where he just seems like he can't stop. He just has to keep going. 
And then the next uh, 15 through 23 of what we call chapter 1, there is this prayer, which we use some of it as the basis of our prayer this morning as before the sermon. Chapter 2 uh, is uh, verses 1 to 3. He describes the human condition and gives three things which demonstrate the fact that we are by nature, he says, children of wrath. All of us outside of Christ, the whole world, from Adam on, are in the same position. And left to our own devices, the end would be, as it says in John 3.18, judged already. That would be the end of the story. But, verse 4, one of the great buts of the Bible, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he speaks about this incredible transfer, this spiritual reality which moves people from lostness to enemy of God, to sure judgment, to being dismissed, to being brought to the beloved where they're raised up with Christ, seated with him, where their future is thinking about the unsearchable riches of of Christ. It, it talks about verse 7, so that the, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This glorious inheritance which is for all eternity. And so it is that from verse uh, uh, 11 on of chapter 2, he then goes from the individual to speaking about targeting particularly the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles naturally uh, had long absorbed the fact that they were at best second-class citizens in terms of thinking of the Old Testament system and that they had no right in the commonwealth of God. There were God-fearers, but they were at some level excluded. And I was thinking about that passage where Jesus himself, he, he, the, the disciples were saying, get rid of this woman. Uh, and uh, he said to her, I, have sent, I have, was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. But nevertheless, it might be possible to think that at best, we who are Gentiles are just scooping up some of the crumbs and are on the, uh, on the outside. And, and so Paul wants to make it clear, and he does at the end of chapter 2, that in fact that's not the case. Though they were in this, remember that verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the common covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, that would be and was the Gentiles, the Greeks, reality. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so he talks about this, this plan of God, which is to bring together one new humanity, one man, from those who are far, he's talking about the Gentiles, and those who are near, talking about the Jews, but all brought Needly needed to Christ and the foot of the cross 
because it's only by the blood of Christ can any of us be brought into the kingdom and to be part of that humanity. And so he talks about verse of the, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I suggest to you the passage that we're looking at this morning is Paul taking a step aside from what he's really trying to get to, which is the doxology, which is verses 14 to 21 of chapter 3. And then go on from chapter 4 on and talk about the transformation, the reality of this revelation of Jesus is meant to have on, on individuals and on the church and on the world. But in the midst of that, uh, I think he's asking the question, uh, how, can, uh, how do I know all this is true? How do I know that... How, how can you, Paul, speak in such strong, authoritative terms about all these things in such an exalted way? Could it be just rhetoric and hyperbole and dream? He says, definitely no, I suggest to you. And he says it is because it's all about revelation. It's not about humankind their best minds and their best hearts using their forensic ability to sort of scoop together all the clues and come to some understanding of how God must be and what he might be about if there is such a thing, etc. This is entirely God speaking to us and making himself known. And to do that, he reverts now to a very personal testimony. He says, in fact, he says to the Gentiles, this stewardship of God's grace, verse 2, that was given to me for you. He's saying the revelation came to him, but it actually was not supposed to stop there. It was actually for the whole of the world this revelation was to be distributed. To him, for us. How, verse 3 the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now, maybe you remember the story of Paul. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, he was actually an enemy of the cross, enemy of the way, enemy of the church, hated the name of Jesus, wanted to stamp it out. At the martyrdom of Stephen, he was not only cheering them on as they stoned him, but collecting their robes to give ease so that they could do this thing. He was the keener and the zealot who took it upon himself to, uh, um, to get authority, to scoop up all the Christians, not just in Jerusalem, but wherever they found themselves. And it was on his way to the great city of Damascus that he was caught in a blinding light of the risen Lord Jesus, which changed everything. He says in, in uh, Acts 26, and this is also an interesting, I love the book of Acts because it's such a good yarn, as my mother would say. It's just, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just too good. And so it is that, in fact, in Acts 26, Paul is now in arrest. He's uh, in Caesarea uh, and uh, He's, uh, and Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Bernice are there, and Festus, and they want to hear, almost like a sideshow, but to hear why it is this guy is being sent to Caesar, to appeal to Caesar. And in the midst of this, in Acts 26, he said this, 
Uh, it's telling of that event in, on the way to Damascus. And I said to this blinding light, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now that's interesting too, isn't it? That Jesus takes the struggles of his children so personally that he could say to Paul, as Saul at that point, Saul of Tarsus, you are persecuting me. But rise, verse 16, and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Listen to this. What was his job? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's not saying these are all dumb people who don't get it and you're going to have to help them out. He's talking about people who are under the curse of Satan and they're in darkness and they're separated from God and you, Saul, soon to be Paul, are given the task because I'm revealing myself to you that you are to do, give the same revelation to open their eyes so that they can be brought into this great gathering of this people of every nation and every tribe unto that day. Paul said in Galatians 1, he said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that's the background in terms of the guy who's writing Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. And when he says, I received a revelation, uh, the mystery and the revelation, which I've written briefly, this is what he's talking about. And this is how he's identifying. He's not boasting. He's not saying, I'm the only guy who could figure all this stuff out. Aren't I great? He's saying, I, and you'll, as we will see later on, he's saying, I'm the worst of the worst, and therefore are a display of the grace of God that he would choose the likes of me to reveal himself so that I can be the conduit through which the beginning of this great revelation happens. I have three points on this passage which I like to draw our attention to. Verses 1 to... Uh, uh, the first one is the fact and the necessity of revelation. Paul is saying none of the things of who God is or His purposes could ever be perceived by the mind of humankind unless God chose to make himself known and his plan known. It's got to be from him to us. That's the only way it works. And in fact, even in general, I'm going to use the word revelation. He make the, the, for instance, to the Romans 1, he talks about the invisible attributes of the divine nature of God, which, uh, which is, he says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made, so that they are without excuse. It's because he went, said before that, for what, God can, what can be known about God 
even in creation, is plain to us because God has shown it to us. If we looked at Psalm 19, we would see how God uses creation to reveal himself in general terms. But Paul now is talking about a very real, a very personal revelation of the heart of God, the word of God in Jesus. And so he's saying it has to be uh, even more clear. For this reason, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He, uh, he considers even his imprisonment, and he's probably doing a play on words here, which is not only that he's in prison, but he's a prisoner to Christ, to the will of Christ. He will only do and seek to do the, the will of Christ. And so he's a bondservant. He's chosen willingly and joyfully to sign on to Jesus. It's as if an all has been driven through his ear and said, I'm a slave to him. That's the kind of prisoner he is. Um, and he's saying, but it's for the Gentiles primarily. It's for the world. It's for the world. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Remember, we talked about that already. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, I've always loved mysteries. Uh, I, uh, I used to, in my university years, I, if there was an exam tomorrow, I would close my books and say, whatever I've got, I've got. I'm going to give up on the rest. There's no point in doing any more. And I always read murder mysteries the night before, which may be a reason, uh, explanation as to why I didn't do that well. But anyway, th that's another story. But anyway, uh, but it's true that I did read those. But I found, I I've always found mysteries really interesting. But this is not mystery in the sense of something that if you follow the clues and if you you know, whether it be Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie's, um, whoever, you know, Hercule Poirot or whatever, uh, it's, it's not like that. It's something which is absolutely hidden and completely the door is slammed closed. And in fact, lest we wonder if it maybe, 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 if we did a little work a little harder, we could figure it out. Verse 9 of the passage we're looking at, actually it says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So God actually does a cover-up, does a hiding, chooses not to make known until He does make known. And in fact, we go on and says, verse 3, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation... And revelation is from God to us. God exposing his heart, making himself known in Jesus. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. How? By the Spirit. And so there is this dissemination of light, this giving glimpses, glimpses, glimpses in what is the Old Testament, the preparation, and then in one blinding light entrance of Jesus. And then incredibly through the apostles making the means through which the light who is Christ being exposed to the whole world. He's saying in the past, 
The sons of men didn't have that, but now God has chosen to make it known by the Spirit at this time. There's a before and after aspect to this. As we've said, he's not boasting. He's exposing all, it's all God, all his initiative, carefully worked out according to his plan and his timetable. There has to be revelation. And in fact, that is why Christians are so tied to the book. Because everything we know about God, everything we know about the things of God, everything we know about life in Him is in the Word, in the Bible. It's revelation. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And he goes on in teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, equipping. See, we need the revelation without the revelation. I don't care what your ministry is, you need the Word. And so it is that, for instance, Peter could say of the Word, you know, he talked about an eyewitness at the day, at transfiguration, heard the divine glory saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. And he said, and so you do well. We have a word made more sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And he goes on and says, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation because it's men and, uh, moved by God, by the Holy Spirit. They weren't mindless. It wasn't like they were in a trance. God used their mind, their perception of of culture and all these things, but out of it came the true Word of God, revelation. That's why we Christians are so tied to the Word. And that's why the Word is such an important part of our life and our worship. Secondly, the mystery, which is this hidden thing, is the inexpressible, which has now been made re revealed, is the inexpressible and incredible riches and wisdom which are in Christ Jesus alone for the Gentiles as well as for Jews, for everyone. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's why the gospel is such good news because what it does, it presents Jesus and relationship with him through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and by the Spirit who comes and makes us new, sprinkles us clean, causes us to be born of the Spirit. He brings us into this relationship where all of these things, which he started in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, are automatically in him part of our inheritance. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of hidden for ages? So this inexpressible riches in Christ is not for the few, it's for everybody. I love that, that I never have to wonder if there's going to be in any congregation that I'm fortunate enough to speak to, that there would be someone who, this does not apply to you. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for everyone and it works in every case when received by faith. What are these, uh, he says this was verse 11, the, according to the eternal purpose that has, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the incredible riches of Christ we talked about when we looked at chapter 2. We won't uh, take more time, but only to say on this, the last three verses of chapter 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple. Thirdly, the gospel, the mystery revealed, is not only made known, it's on display by God's power at work. This is an interesting thing in that, for instance, Paul makes this clear by speaking about himself, about the wonder of the worst being the exhibit A of the grace of God and the revelation being made known. He said, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's saying, this is, this is the way it works. God chose the worst to make it clear how this really works. And so verse uh, 10, he goes on and says, so that through, secondly, not only unexpected individuals, but by the church, which seems to be so on the sidelines of where the real action is in this world. It seems like the news has no interest in this thing called the church, where the action is in political and military and economic. That's where real things happen. And so it is that it seems so surprising that Paul could say so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to, interestingly, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about the whole angelic realm both angels and demons, that in fact, in an incredible way, the church, having received the salvation, and it has an interesting picture in terms of even our worship today, because it's, it's expressing and displaying and proclaiming the reality of who God is to heaven and earth. Peter says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to, be, was, your, was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they who were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you that those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, this is the interesting phrase, things into which angels long to look. The church is the place in which the display of the glory of Christ is to be revealed, not only to the world, but to heaven itself. Dear friends, we are called in Christ to receive the revelation which has been faithfully passed on to us through the apostles and prophets. And to receive that revelation by faith and then to take our place in terms of displaying, witnessing, speaking to, proclaiming, sharing this Jesus, which is for everyone. That's why I'm such a big fan of of one, of one of the things that we work on as a diocese is learning how to articulate the good news of the gospel in a meaningful way and inviting people to respond 
is because the very plan of God which has been revealed is to expose the good news of the gospel through the likes of you and me, dear friends. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we know in you and you alone we are truly blessed. We have received in you the inexpressible goodness and kindness of God uh, which has been made known to us and we are experiencing more and more. And Lord, if there's any who are on the sidelines of these things, would you hear them as they call out and invite you to come uh, and be their Savior as well? And then, Lord, we're asking you to enable us as individuals and as a congregation and as the church to be the beautiful display of the manifold riches of the, of, of the goodness and lo- of the Lord Jesus to this world. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.